Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Dorn and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. It's been a busy time for 10 by 9 recently but it'll be getting a bit quieter from here on in. There are three fantastic stories on the podcast for you this week, all told when we took 10 by 9 to the Mavadi and the lovely Roe Valley Arts Centre. And it was November the 10th, and the theme was Secrets and Lies. She dictated the letters to me, and I wrote them out as neatly as I could, as if she was writing them. The listic combination of country music, John Wayne films, and tractors <laughs> indicated someone with whom I might not have a lot in common. Surely if I told the priest, he would make me confess my wrongdoings to my parents and teachers as well. And so the guilt and fear continued. So brace yourself for some ghost-written letters, true love on the dating app, and a secret that has never been revealed before. And here we go with our first story. She told one story previously when we were in Derry recently, so this was just her second time. Say hello to Florence Forbes. I'm a big girl now. I can read and write. I know lots of things. I know what a lie is and that it is wrong to tell one. Secrets are more difficult. My understanding was that it was only a secret when someone told you something and asked you not to tell anyone else. But I was becoming aware of other secrets. Ones that you were supposed to know not to speak of. This didn't unduly bother me until one day the two things, secrets and lies, clashed. It started one day midweek when I came home from school. Normally after we had eaten, I settled down to do my homework. Now that I was at big school, there was a lot more homework than I cared for, but my mother made sure that I did it. Education was important. She didn't have the chances that we maybe took for granted. Given this, I was very surprised when she told me that she needed me to do something that evening. It's strange to say, but I have no memory of what it was. It could have been an unexpected visitor. It could have been anything. Whatever it was, it meant that I would not be able to do my homework that evening. And there was one in particular that I was meant to hand in the next day. School rules said that we could only be excused if a parent wrote a letter explaining what the problem was and it was expected that the work would be completed at a later date. That was not a problem, said my mother. Go and get the writing pad and pen. At this point, perhaps I should explain that I had inherited an important role in our home. Originally, it belonged to my eldest sister. After she got married and left home, the role passed on to my other sister. My brothers were not considered at all. Recently, my second sister had left home to work in a hospital in a different city. Now I became the letter writer. My mother had left school when she was 13 or 14. Although she could read and write, it was not her strong point. She dictated the letters to me, and I wrote them out as neatly as I could, 
as if she was writing them. They were mostly family letters and I did not object at all to having to do this. So I sat down and started the letter. Dear Miss, please excuse homework due to signed and signed my mother's name. With the letter in my school bag, I proceeded to do whatever I had been asked. The following day in the French class, the teacher started to collect the homeworks. I handed her the letter. I was sitting in the front row beside two girls who seemed friendly enough. Having started this new school midterm, everyone seemed to have chosen their best friends. I've been told that it can be difficult to start a new school, especially midterm, as sometimes girls can be a bit unfriendly. I didn't really find this to be the case. Totally unaware of the trump card that I held, most of the girls in my new class were becoming aware of boys, and I had five older brothers. I'd never noticed it myself, but apparently they were all considered to be fairly good-looking. The girls wanted to be my friend. The teacher, having finished collecting homework, sat down at her desk and opened the letter I had handed to her. After reading it, she held it up towards me, focused her beady eyes on me, and asked in a sharp voice, is this your handwriting? Time stopped. I froze as if in the spotlight. It started to filter through my brain what this looked like. I opened my mouth to speak, but no words were forthcoming. What could I say? Tell a lie and deny that it was me who had written the letter? It would be so obvious that I was lying. Tell the truth. If I did, I would have to explain why. This was when it sank in that maybe my mother didn't want people to know. I had never seen it as a problem when she told me about leaving school so early. It was like that for lots of people at the time, especially in Donegal. But then again, not everyone. I hadn't been told not to tell anyone, but it definitely felt like a secret. I tried to speak again, but there was only a lump in my throat where words normally flew past. The girl beside me saw my stricken face. She smiled as if to acknowledge that it was okay not to be a little goody two-shoes and looking at the letter, which she knew was in my handwriting, told a lie. That's not her handwriting. Hers is far scrawlier than that. The teacher decided to leave it at that and continued with the class. That's when I learned about the different types of lies. My classmate had told what could probably be described as a little white lie to help someone out. I suppose we all use them a lot. But then there are other types. I call them unintentional lies. You mean what you're saying at the time, but deep down in the hidden depths, you know the opposite is true. It occurred to me that my mother often used the phrase, I don't care what people think, when in fact she really did care. Of course, I took it literally, thinking that she was right. 
Why indeed should anyone care what someone else thinks? Then it all came back to me. The time I had told a straightforward lie. I was walking home with a new school friend who lived near to where we had moved to. As we walked up the street, she caught sight of a drunk man staggering along on the other side of the street. As I followed her gaze, she looked at me and said, isn't that your father? Without hesitation, I uttered an emphatic no and carried on walking. At least when I denied him, I wasn't paid 30 pieces of silver. Uh, thanks so much, Florence. What a great story and what a generous, quick-thinking friend. And if you think you can follow in Florence's storytelling footsteps, then get in touch through our website at 10by9.com. We are always, I cannot repeat this enough, always looking for storytellers. Or contact us through our social media channels. Okay, on to our next story. And she's a regular whenever we go to the Northwest. Here's Mary Farrell. There I was, standing at Derry Airport in the general reception area, waiting for passengers to disembark from the plane which had just arrived. I had told only two people that I would be there, but I was not actually, but I preferred to classify it under that I could be committing a sin of omission, but I preferred to classify it under the CIA umbrella of those who need to know. I had not actually lied to anyone. I had just been uncharacteristically recitant over the last few weeks about what was going on in my life. So here's the backstory. At the age of 54, I had been amicably divorced for four years, was well settled in my new home, had started a new business after teaching for 26 years, and was now looking for companionship. Four years outside the comfortable corral of coupledom had convinced me that to have any kind of a vibrant social life in Northern Ireland, you needed a plus one. How had I reached my 50s without being aware that all social groupings, whether indoors or out in the town, took place in groups of even numbers, never odd ones? I was increasingly coming to the conclusion that the issue with Judas might have had less to do with any cheek kissing in the Garden of the Gethsemane and more to do with the fact that booking an upstairs table for 13 on a Thursday night might be a problem. <laughs> Therefore, I did what singletons the world over now do without batting an eyelid. I joined a dating site. And so, back to secrets and lies. If anyone had asked back then, I wouldn't actually have kept it a secret. But of course, no one thought to randomly make that inquiry. Ergo, I never had to lie. Cue saintly music from above. But lordy, lordy, the secrets I uncovered about certain parts of the rest of these two islands. Now, Liston Varna thinks it has it cracked then and now about being the dating capital of Ireland. It didn't hold a candle when it came to searching for mates to the town of Mullingar. I don't know what the demographic of the town was at the time, 
But going by the profiles of single men, I strongly suspected that as every Mullingarian female celebrated her 18th birthday, the next morning saw her suitcase in hand at the bus stop on the way out of town. Nari, a male in Mullingar, seemed to have a partner. I don't think it was coincidence that at the same time, I discovered that in each dating profile, in the category favorite hobbies, the listed combination of country music, John Wayne films, and tractors <laughs> indicated someone with whom I might not have a lot in common. Nothing wrong with any of these interests in the singular, but when linked together, they hinted at a conversational scenario in which even I might find myself floundering. So I looked to the other island to see what the pickings might be there. What a world of difference in the favorite hobbies category. Was there some kind of secret senior Olympics being held every four years under my radar? Walking, swimming, cycling, were the hobbies of the sloths among the profiles. Any self-respecting male spent his weekends mountain climbing, deep sea diving, and running marathons. I found myself exhausted just reading them. And yes, the words, they must be lying, did flit across my reality checker. At the very least, I realized they weren't plus one material. They'd never slow down long enough for me to catch them, to test run them as arm candy. But my 54-year-old self had a sense of humor, a wide band width of curiosity, and a thran tenacity to continue my holy grail search. Practically developing repetitive strain injury and scrolling through page after page after page of profiles, I kept passing one particularly pleasant smile with a very interesting and appealing description attached. With deep regret, I decided to leave a message for this individual. Why regret? He lived in Yorkshire. With no hint of a lie in what I wrote, I saw no reason to keep it a secret that I would have been very interested in this individual had the geographical distance between us been different. He replied in exactly the same oakum manner, and we agreed to email each other occasionally in the future with an update on our progress. How the fates must have laughed at our attempt to keep one vital secret from ourselves. We had met our match, literally. Far from occasional updates, steady emails and three phone calls, this was when for ordinary folk FaceTime and video calls were still a futuristic fantasy, meant that a mere 18 days later, he landed on the runway at Derry. With his next flight back to Northern Ireland, already booked for three weeks later. <laughs> we had never seen anything but a few photographs of each other, and the three phone calls had been short, but we knew. We just knew. It was no secret to anyone who later, later met us that we were indeed two halves of the one entity. And it remained that way until the moment he passed from esophageal cancer four and a half short years later. 
But I don't want this to be a sad tale. That would be a falsity, a lie. I want you to rejoice that this man lived, that we met the way we did, that we loved. It should never be a secret that any couple met on a dating site. After all, who's to judge where lightning strikes and love begins? Mary, you have broken our hearts and we thank you so much for that. It was wonderful. Remember, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal if you like. Or maybe give the podcast a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. We'd be very grateful. Of course, we're happy for you to just sit back, relax and enjoy. Okay, on to our third and final story. She featured recently on the podcast with Tales from the Hospital Wards, but I couldn't not include this next story. It's a cracker. Take it away, Gloria O'Connor. When I was about eight or nine years old, our teachers told us about a poetry competition and they wanted us all to write something for it. And this was no ordinary competition. It was being run by the Daily Mirror, a national competition, no less. There were a few of us in the class who had produced some reasonable pieces of writing in the past, so the pressure was on. And Mrs. Stewart smiled and looked directly at me, I was sure, when she said, we're expecting great things from you girls. I was excited too, for this seemed like a great opportunity for me to show off. And there were cash prizes. Well, I had never heard the expression writer's block before then, but by God, I was about to find out. The poetry competition was all I could think about. But there were no themes or prompts, and I literally couldn't come up with anything. As the closing date drew near, Mrs. Stewart looked at me expectantly every day, and still I drew a blank. I tried, I really, really tried, but nothing. Eventually I started reading through my books in search of some sort of inspiration, anything at all. I was a big fan of Enid Blyton at that time, and that was my starting point. So I waded through whatever volumes of the famous five I had. No good. And then the secret seven. Still nothing. It was a good distraction, if nothing else. I loved those books. And then I picked up the mystery of the strange messages, and there it was. Not so much inspiration as temptation. There was a poem called The Old House. Oh God, I can remember the words to this day. There was a poor old house that once was full of folk, but now was sad and empty, and to me it spoke. And it certainly seemed to speak to me. And I went on, no smoke comes from my chimneys, no name is on my gate. I once was called the Ivies, but now I'm out of date. I'm cringing even reading this. I didn't have a clear plan in my head when I started writing out that poem in my school homework book. But just as I had finished transcribing it, my father came into the room and wanted to know what I was writing. He was a kind man and had a genuine interest in our school work, having had his own schooling cut short at 14 to work and earn money to help support his younger siblings. I handed him the exercise book and watched as he read the poem aloud 
his eyes gleaming with pride. Did you write this, he asked. And I nodded treacherously. And from that moment on, there was no going back. Dad made sure that my homework book was packed into my school bag in the morning to show my teacher. And Mrs. Stewart was clearly no avid reader of Enid Blyton, for she gushed about my poem. She showed it to the other teachers and had me read it to the rest of the class. Luckily for me, no one else seemed to have read the mystery of the strange messages either. <laughs> In due course, because there was nothing I could do to stop it now, my poem was sent off to the Daily Mirror. <laughs> my teachers and my parents were so proud and hopeful, and I was consumed with guilt and fear. I couldn't tell anyone my awful secret. I couldn't even tell the priest at the fortnightly confession that we were dragged to our school being conveniently located in the church grounds. Surely if I told the priest, he would make me confess my wrongdoings to my parents and teachers as well. And so the guilt and fear continued. Now that the Daily Mirror had received the poem, someone was bound to recognize it. Even at my young age, I knew that several scenarios could ensue. And believe me, those scenarios played out in my head every night when I tried to sleep and those now-hated lines echoed my own feelings of desolation and despair. Now they all have left. My rooms are cold and bare. The front door's locked and bolted, and all the windows stare. What if the judges at the Daily Mirror actually thought this was a prize-winning poem and wanted to publish it? <laughs> then someone would definitely recognize it, and I would be shamed on a national scale, and the paper would be furious with me. Or maybe it wouldn't get that far and the judges would recognize the poem right away and contact my teacher and tell her of my awful crime. No matter what way I looked at it, shame and humiliation were the only possible outcomes of this whole dreadful situation. One day I arrived home from school and found the priest talking with my parents. Oh no, <laughs> my stomach flipped, this was it. He must have been sent by my teacher to break the shameful news to them. My mother was serving him tea in the best china. And as I listened, I realized that he was actually only there to discuss parish council business with my father. I honestly don't know if I was relieved or not. And then, horror of horrors, my mother told him about my poem. I was literally hiding under our big dining room table at this stage, but they found me and I was pushed forward to recite that awful piece. I think they actually considered it somehow endearing that I appeared shy and reluctant to perform. The last lines of that poem again echoed my despair. The garden's poor and weedy, the trees won't leaf again, but though I fall to ruin, the ivy will remain. Days and weeks passed after the closing date of the competition. I genuinely think that my parents thought I was anxious about not winning a prize. Finally, the list of prize winners was printed. Mrs. Stewart held the paper up and read the names aloud. I could tell she was disappointed that I wasn't on the list, but I felt only relief. My parents were disappointed too, although they tried not to show it. Sure, they're all English names, my father said. They probably wouldn't give it to someone in Northern Ireland. Better by far that they were disappointed for me than that they would be disappointed in me. 
My relief was still tinged with dread because I feared that the people at the Daily Mirror might still proclaim my wrongdoing. But time passed, however, as it does, and I gradually relaxed and buried my secret deeper. My father died when I was 12, and I never told him the truth about the old house. Sorry, Dad. My mother is gone now too, and Mrs. Stewart? Well, I never saw her again after that school year. And I have never told a shameful secret to anyone until tonight. <laughs> Thank you. Glorious Gloria again. How fantastic. What a great story. 10 by 9 has been doing the work of the confessional now for 11 years. Long may it continue. Thank you so much for sending us home from Limavady with that great tale. And that's it for this podcast. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Also email and that is story at 10by9.com and check out our website. Maybe think about giving the podcast a review or a rating at a podcast app. And if you can, tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to all the people who make 10 by 9 happen, whether in the black box or, in this case, Roe Valley Arts, especially Esther, Shona and Adam. Thanks too to our amazing Limavati audience and all our storytellers, but especially Florence Forbes, Mary Farrell and Gloria O'Connor. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now... Bye-bye.